now it's the preaching season in Acts 19. So let's turn to it, Acts 19. Uh, the city of Ephesus was not too unlike living here in America. Uh, when you think about it, it had pockets of religious influence amongst a culture of materialism and corruption. I think we could all agree with that, could we not? Paul spent three months ministering in a synagogue, which signals to us that there was probably a, a sizable Jewish community there in Ephesus. But make no mistake about it, a religious influence that promoted living lives, consecrated to God, that was a minority in Ephesus. Within Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis. The temple was, was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, 60 feet high. It had 127 marble pillars that were inlaid with jewels and gold. And placed on the altar was a black multi-breasted image of Artemis that was supposed to have fallen from heaven. This was a symbol of fertility and prosperity for Ephesus. And of course, ritual prostitution was regular practice there at the temple. So living as a Christian in Ephesus meant holding on to values that ran counter to the culture. So like I said, much like living here in America. As I read over this passage, one of the greatest takeaways for me was the model that Paul set for ministry here that I think is very much worth emulating. The fact is, I think all of us here have had some experience in serving, and if you've done that, all of you then have probably had negative experiences in serving, right? Whether it's vocational ministry or, or volunteer ministry, we have, unfortunately, a lot of negative examples of ways not to minister, models not to follow, you know, spiritual leaders who yell and berate people. Um, I had a friend who was on staff at a church, speaking of negative models, and, and the pastor made the staff come over to his house and work on his house while they were on the job, you know, supposed to be at the church working. I mean, that's, that's actually illegal. Uh, you can't do that, but it didn't seem to stop him. And that's 1 Peter 5.2 uh, speaks of that as shameful gain. It reminds me of uh, Carrie Newoff who talked about five things that pastors do to get a bad name. Uh, you can probably come up with more than five, I'm sure, but um, these, are, these are his five. First was speaking weird. Can I get an Amen. Pastors who speak weird, who use a language nobody can understand and use a tone in a sermon that they don't really talk to. It's like, who is that person up on the stage talking? Because he's not like that when he's off the stage, right? They're speaking weird. Two is pretending to be uh, something we're not. Three is being known for what we're against, not what we're for. Number four, being experts when we're not experts on something, presenting ourselves as an expert on a topic when we're not. And number five, claiming privilege. Ever been behind a pastor at a store and he's begging for a discount 
telling everybody he's a pastor. I hate that. Claiming privilege. Actually, I'm going to get too depressed if I go on further about all the negative examples. So let's turn to Acts 19, and we're going to look at a model worth emulating for ministry. Let's all stand. And he, speaking of Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So here's one takeaway. And I hope you know that when I give points, I'm not saying these are the only points or this is exhaustive. The Spirit of God speaks to you as well. But, uh, you know, this is my job to give you as I see it, and so you'll have to suffer through it. All right. Number one, the necessity of endurance in ministry. The necessity of endurance. And we say, endurance? He did this for three months. How's that endurance? Well, He's ministering in the synagogue with Jews. Get this. This is the longest period of time we read about Paul being in the synagogue. Three months. You say, how's that? Because he's been kicked out everywhere else. Because there are riots. Because he's usually thrown in jail. Because he's usually beaten just a week or two in. That's what has happened to him. In a short time, every time he goes to a synagogue. So you may think three months isn't very long, and we know from the story he got opposition here too, right? But have you ever faced intense opposition from a small group of people or gone into a meeting knowing that opposition was guaranteed? Do you know what that's like? I've been a pastor for 30 years. I've had a couple seasons where opposition was intense. And I can tell you, to do that for three weeks, I mean, for, th uh, for three uh, months, every week, okay, that is heart attack territory. That is physically and emotionally exhausting. Can I get an amen, Janet? <laughs> uh, we know, we know from Acts 20, 31, that Paul spent three years total in Ephesus, right? He ministered for three months in the synagogue. We know that. We know that they later rented a, a teaching hall. He did that for two years. And then he spent about nine months doing some other things. Now, he changed his location because of the opposition, but that didn't mean he ceased to minister. He just changed the address. But he, so he endured in the midst of opposition. So whether it's vocational ministry or, or volunteer ministry, just write this down. It's naive to think there won't be opposition, right? You say, even here? In spring, in Christ's community? It's naive to think there'll not be any trouble or any opposition, okay? That's naive. And it's short-sighted to think that deep, effective ministry is done instantly, sustaining 
kingdom, community, and effectiveness over the long haul, that brings a kind of fruit that will not come otherwise. And so we're thankful, and I'm sure the Ephesians were thankful, and we'll see some of the fruit that happened as a result of his staying there, even though there was opposition. So, endurance. Next, we're to choose a wholesome manner as we minister. Now, if you think about this, you think about, all right, what kind of volunteer do I want to be? Do I want to be the complaining, whining type? Do I want to be the helpful type? Do I want to bring life to a situation? Or do I want to drain the energy out of the room? What kind of minister, ministry do I want to have? What kind of person do I want to be? Because we choose that, right? Nobody chooses our attitude, we do. Nobody chooses, you know, somebody else doesn't choose your behavior, you do, right? So we, we get to choose that. And it tells us here that Paul spoke boldly, reasoning, and persuading. So it's a kind of manner, the way he communicated, the way he was operating, the way he was relating, by speaking boldly, it tells us that he was straightforward and that he was courageous when he spoke of Christ. I mean, the gospel of all messages of mankind, give me a more important one, there isn't, of all messages, isn't that worth laying it on the line? So he was bold. And it says that he was reasoning. That tells us that Paul, you know, did his homework, but there was discussion. He instructed. He made logical arguments. There was a give and take. And we read of the same when he was in Thessalonica. Listen to this from chapter 17. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, three days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. There's this, there's this dialogue that's taking place. And then it says he sought to persuade. This means that he wasn't just giving intellectual arguments, but he was moving them to action, that they were to humble themselves before this God and acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah, acknowledge their sin, repent of their sin, and be a follower of Christ. Such a manner like this of the, again, the speaking boldly, reasoning, persuading, right? That's built on an understanding of the importance of the message and the value of the audience. Oh, there are many who don't understand the importance of the message. They just give manly wisdom. Wouldn't support that, wouldn't do that. And then the value of the audience. Many in ministry don't value and respect their people. You can tell by their tone, by the way that they treat others. The way that he went about this, value of the listener, importance of the message. So when I do those things, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take time to explain. I, I, I want to take time, like Paul, to answer questions. Uh, we treat our audience with respect. We listen to their concerns. The gospel is too important of a message to just, you know, 
drop pamphlets from a blimp and hope and pray that somehow they'll read it. We don't, we don't just have a, a canned speech to give to people and then leave. Never engaging, never getting close enough to find out what their real needs are. Now, Paul spent time, was conversing. You know, you go through the book of Acts and you see that he did this continually. There's a, there's a pattern here. And our elders and staff here have, you know, kind of been asking ourselves some questions. That, how should this influence us as a church? How might we put forth a, a church-wide effort to emulate this kind of a model? And we are looking at different programs that would help us do that. I'm not quite yet to announce it's going to be this program, but I can guarantee you it will involve relationships, uh, listening to content, allowing people to ask questions, an open dialogue, treating people with respect. So pray for us, probably be some food involved too. You always need that. But pray for us as we investigate this and put together a team to mobilize our church for advancement in the kingdom. So choosing a wholesome manner for ministry. Next, next is adhere to a divine message. Paul's message, it says, was about what? The kingdom of God. Now, certainly that includes the gospel, but it's a, it's a comprehensive claim about the sphere and authority of God's leadership in our lives. We are in his kingdom. That means there is a king. That means we are his subjects. Now, there are numerous analogies that Jesus gave about the kingdom in the Gospels, including the parable of the sower, wheat and tares, mustard seed, unleavened bread, the search for the pearls. But the, the central thing I want us to understand is he talked a lot about the kingdom, and so did the apostles in Acts. There's a succinct passage that kind of frames our place in the kingdom. In 1 Peter 2, 9, it says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Did you know that you don't own your body? My body is my own. I can do it. No, it's not. You were created. You are made in the image of God. You are to be a steward of that body. And so a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We exist for his pleasure, for his honor, for his glory. This is, uh, this is discipleship, not consumerism. The thinking of many Christians goes something like this. You know, I will follow Jesus as long as I have the final say. As long as I get to determine how much it will cost me in terms of time and, and money and relationships. As long as I can still enjoy my lifestyle on my terms, not make any real sacrifices, let somebody else do the heavy lifting. Now, if such an idea were adopted by most of us in a church, it would be a scourge upon the church. And then what we end up doing is entertaining instead of worshiping, tickling instead of teaching, 
the precepts of God. And as a result, what happens? The lives of the people in the church are imperceptible from the world. Thus, the church. I'd be derelict in my duty if I didn't call us, including myself. And by the way, I'd be derelict in my duty if I didn't live by these things I'm telling you about. I need to call myself. I'd be a charlatan if I stood up here and asked you to do something I was unwilling to do. So there's a maximum commitment to the kingdom of God. How could it be any less? Say, well, wait a minute. You know, you can take that stuff too far, Kevin. I mean, uh, this kingdom mindset, well, let me throw this out. These are the words of Jesus. I figured he might know what he's talking about. And do not seek what, what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Don't be worried. Don't be stressed. Mm-mm-mm. I heard somebody speaking the other day, uh, a pastor that was going through a bunch of stress, and uh, another pastor said, you need to preach about it then, because when you preach about it, then you know, you're going to learn some things. Because I thought, maybe I need to do that. <laughs> preach about rest and stress. I drove to St. Louis alone back yesterday. And, you know, just speaking to the Lord about some things, and I realized that the stress in my life, particularly this summer, you know, we moved my mom. She's got Alzheimer's. Then we moved, and there's stuff around the house that has to be done. And my, my blood pressure was up over 200, and I'm just like, and I can feel myself just like my body, you know, jittery. Something's got something's to break. So that means, you know, more food. Um, no. <laughs> the Lord was telling me, and particularly like with our house, because you've got a hundred things that have to be done, and it's like I can't rest until they're done. And like the Lord just said, no, wait, wait. Hey, you don't have to get all these things done. Enjoy it now. Just do what you can today and not worry about it. And besides, whose is it? And are you there trying to show it off? Or are you there to use it for, for my glory? You know, I mean, it's like a, you know, five hooks out of the Wow, I needed that. And so, all right, okay, Lord, it really is yours. And uh, so, you know, blood pressure, by the way, has come down about 50, 60 points, so we're glad for that. It's not your stuff. You know, it... I think sometimes, you know what we resemble? We resemble like the crew on the Titanic trying to get the deck chairs arranged. Like, dude, it's going down. This doesn't matter. Maybe if God gives me 70, 80 years on the earth, I'm worried about the stuff here when I got eternity to plan for, a kingdom to work for. I mean, which would you be working for, right? Right? We got to ask ourselves that. Not nothing wrong with having the house, you know. Nothing wrong with having nice things, but particularly if you can leverage that for the kingdom, use that for the kingdom. That's awesome, right? And don't you start comparing yourself with others. Well, he obviously isn't using that for the kingdom. He's got more than I do. Quit that. 
It's not about the amount, it's about the, the heart and, and you using it for the kingdom of God. Christ implores us to seek that which lasts. And that's the stuff for eternity, the kingdom. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So here we see that rejection opened a door to opportunity. Notice the type of opposition that was taking place. Some of the Jews in the synagogue, it says, you know, were, were stubborn, continued in unbelief, spoke evil of the way. There are people like that. It doesn't matter what the facts are. It doesn't matter what reality is. They're going to continue to fight against it, right? Their hearts were hardened. They were unwilling to bend. And in cases like that, he was smart enough to go elsewhere. Listen, there's some of you in your family or with friends, you keep dogging them about stuff in their life when their hearts are hardened and you need to quit it, right? I see it in our own family. I see it in other families. And you know what Paul did? He just quit. Not quit the ministry, but there in that location, went to another location where he could be effective. There's something there for us. Their hearts were hardened. Their unbelief was a choice, not based on the facts or truth, but based on an unyieldingness that refused to acknowledge Christ as the Messiah. And this led these people to be abusive in their opposition to the gospel. You know, if only you think if God could only appear before them and, and do miracles and convince them, then they would change their mind. But wait a minute. He actually did that. That was Christ. Miracles all day long, rising from the dead, ascending to heaven. Then there was Pentecost. Then there's apostles doing miracles, and they still dug in, hated Jesus. If there's only more signs and wonders, oh, they had all the signs and wonders they needed. And they spoke evil of the way before the congregation. The way refers to, in Acts 16, 17, the way of salvation the true way of the Lord of God in Acts 18, or of a new relationship with God in, in Hebrews 10.20. And of course, you recall the words of Jesus in John 14.6, where he said he's the, the way, the truth, and the life. They spoke against all that. I've taught philosophy for about 18 years. And one of the things about philosophy is that it can go off into a territory where there are no answers. Everybody's got questions. And then you, you just apply this radical skepticism, and what it does, it so muddies the water that you walk away thinking there is no truth. People can do that. And I think it's a tactic of the evil one, by the way. Uh, you just attack the other person, show them to be an idiot, and therefore I'm released from having to deal with any kind of truth. There's a movie titled Thank You for Smoking about a man who was employed by the tobacco companies to muddy the waters about the negative effects of cigarettes. Now, this is not about cigarettes, but it's just about the, how this man used rhetoric 
to avoid reality. Question everything. That way people can be uncertain about anything. And people often do this. So check out this clip. So you go to an office, then you go on TV and talk about cigarettes. Then you fly to LA and talk to some guy who's a movie search. What is that? It's a job. Well, obviously. I know, but did you study to do that? No. No, I just kind of figured it out. Then you can't everyone just do that? No. It uh, requires a, a moral flexibility. vanilla. (laughs) So there are those who never seem to decide, always question, always the devil's advocate, and in the process they lose their souls. Because a group of Jews had positioned themselves to not ever bend to the truth, Paul left the synagogue and he chooses another venue. We're told that he took a group of Jews who had converted, and they go to the hall of Tyrannus. He's probably a a teacher or philosopher. And research shows that Paul was probably there from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. during the days. Now, this was the time of the normal siesta in that society. So everything else stopped. And some would say that uh, more people slept at 1 p.m., in the city that at 1 a.m. But this is when people decided to hear Paul. So it gives us a clue that Paul was very eager to teach and people were very eager to listen if they were there during those afternoon times. And as a result of doing this for two years, it produced a movement that reached the entire province of Asia Minor. That's pretty cool. So the rejection of the Jews in the synagogue made for a greater opportunity in the hall of Tyrannus. Now, we don't know how Paul paid for that hall. You know, maybe Aquila and Priscilla helped him. 
Maybe Tyrannus became a Christian and gave him a break, but it doesn't matter. There's always people behind the scenes that you don't see that make things happen to which we're extremely grateful for. This opportunity arose because there was rejection, because there was opposition, and this rejection brought opportunity. Paul was resolute to convey the gospel even though a door was closed. And when you're convinced of a, of a biblical principle, obedience, faithfulness, you will knock until a door is open. It's not about being in the synagogue. It's about preaching the gospel. He'll do that anywhere, everywhere. If they don't want it, then I'll go somewhere else. He didn't quit. He just went somewhere else. Ministry is largely about knocking until God opens a door. But be assured, as we've already pointed out, opposition will occur. Amen? All right? Doors will close, but we are enduring to the call that God has upon our lives. Verse 10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greek. We see here God producing fruit in his time. So effective was this work of the gospel, it emanated throughout the province of Asia, which is actually modern-day Turkey. And we know that during this time, as a result of this work, uh, the churches at Laodicea, at Colossae, Hierapolis were, were founded, and some even think the seven churches listed in uh, Revelation 2 and 3 were founded as a result of this. We don't know that for sure. We know that at least several churches were founded. And I love this phrase, this continued for two years. Are you leading a ministry? You know, you might be staff, you might be a volunteer, doesn't matter. Leading a ministry where the fruit is slow. Are you frustrated that people are, are not responding the way that you expected? Maybe there's some instruction here about being willing to flex. I went into a meeting this week expecting a certain result on a particular ministry, came out of the meeting talking about a completely different ministry that the Holy Spirit had directed. And I was like, oh, because we're willing to flex. It was really cool to see what God was doing there. But if, if there are issues, if there are oppositions, you have to be willing to flex. You have to look at your own leadership and say, all right, what can I do to improve? What can I do to change? You make whatever adjustments that you need to make, but you continue to be faithful, and God will reward you for that faithfulness. Now, we may not see the fruit here on earth, but we know that God will reward in heaven. Heavenly rewards are promised, but the fruit on earth, we don't know whether we'll, we'll get to see that or not. Revelation 3.11 says, I'm coming soon, hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. That's talking about a, a heavenly thing. Uh, Matthew 5 says, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil. Again, no. Okay, another word for blessed is happy. Be happy when others revile you. Say, how in the world can I get to that place? Be happy when others persecute you. <laughs> what? Am I reading this right? 
Be happy when others say evil against you falsely on your account. Rejoice and be glad. How? Because your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's a way of saying, trust me, it'll be worth it. And you can look forward to that in the future. It's a great truth. So there's no doubt that God rewards. But we're not necessarily guaranteed that we're going to see the fruit of our labors. But I believe that God will produce fruit. Anytime you're you're teaching the word and you're loving people, I believe that God will produce fruit. I just may not see it, right? But I believe that God will do his work. In 1956, five American missionaries were speared to death in Ecuador by an isolated tribe known as the Waldani. Now, I suppose that some might think that these folks failed, these five. And they certainly were not able to see all the fruit of their labor. Now, you probably know the story that their families went back there and ministered and God did some really cool things. But those five were not able to see the fruit of their labor. What you may not know is how far-reaching the ministry of those five missionaries have been. So I'm going to ask our resident Ecuadorian to come up. Juan Manuel, come on up here, my friend. You walk in different. You didn't get applause in the first service. I'm wondering what happened. <laughs> Have a seat, bud. How you doing, my friend? Oh, good. Good. Love this family. They're in our life group. Love these guys. Tell me, you're obviously from Ecuador. Yes, sir. Quito, okay. the capital. All right. And uh, you and your lovely wife, Shauna. Shauna and my, our daughter, Janelli. She's six years old. And how did you guys meet? Uh, we met in a church life group. And how did you come to Christ? I came to know Christ in my senior year in college. Okay. After my dad um, uh, came to know Jesus and out of alcoholism was free from that. And okay. Yeah. So both of you ministered also in Ecuador, and you went to a church there. Can yes. You, can you tell me a little bit about the church and then kind of what sprung from that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, uh, there was a, a Sunday we, we heard an announcement about a little baby with hydrocephalus needing uh, a couple of parents to take care of her. Um, she was coming from the jungle to, to the city, to the hospital that had the right equipment to do a, a brain surgery. Um, when the pastor of our church in Quito, the city, uh, made the announcement, um, Shauna had been serving a local children's hospital with another kid with hydrocephalus. So the pastor knew that, looked at Shauna when he made the announcement, and apparently, uh, not apparently, but certainly Shauna had a, a connection in her heart, and I guess pastor was able to see that. But anyway, I'm clueless next to her. I'm like, oh, this is not for us. We were about eight months married, and... Uh, yeah, we always uh, wanted to adopt, uh, but not that soon. <laughs> and um, so 
three weeks later, uh, three weeks later, the, the the Lord just did His work in me, and eventually, uh, I had to follow. Had to follow and be okay. We got to put our our, our name on the list, and there were apparently two more couples uh, that had kids that had offered themselves too for this for this need, temporary. Supposedly, uh, it was just until Janelli would go through this uh, third surgery, I think. Yeah, third surgery. Um, and recover and then go back to the jungle. But anyways, they chose us because we didn't have other kids. And, the, uh, you know, the, the, the back, you know, just the, the immune system that Janelli had was very sensitive. So other kids wouldn't have been good. So we got chosen. Um and, you know, just from there, you know, we took care of her for a few months, but one surgery turned into three more and, and so forth. And so ended up doing foster care and finally adopted her three years later. And um, what I'd like to share, I think, is because what you're preaching today is, is the impact of the sacrifice of those five men that died there in the jungle. It's in the province of Pastaza. Janelli was born there. And as many, many thousands of kids, I would say, have uh, been rescued thanks to the missionaries. And, you know, I would say, unfortunately, the five guys that died didn't get to see this, but 60, 70 years ago, uh, there's been just so many blessings to, in our country, in Ecuador, by the missionaries that just follow after that. Obviously, their wives and then their kids and then so many generations. And in our church in the, in the city was planted to support those, ministry, those missionaries as well as reach out to the local community. So it was a mix of Christians, foreign missionaries, and local Ecuadorians. And um, the cool thing is that one of, uh, years ago, a lady from our church in Quito decided to plant a, a, an orphanage in the jungle, in the area where, where the missionaries were killed in Pastaza. And it's called Casa de Fe, House of Hope, and has about 50 to 60 kids at a time. Um, and usually with terminal cases, uh, serving the, na the native tribes, indigenous tribes in the area that don't really know how to, how to take care of uh, medical problems properly, perhaps even the local hospital there in the jungle does not have the equipment, neither the expertise to be able to do stuff, uh, you know, severe, heavy stuff on uh, medical surgeries and whatnot. Um, so the cool thing is our church was supporting the lady that planted the, the, the orphanage in, in the jungle that until today serves many kids and such as ours, you know, and, um, you know, the guys that died didn't get to see the impact, but here we are, you know, even my daughter would not be alive because of that orphanage. And the reason why is because Janelli was born deep in the jungle in Pastaza uh, in a tribe called Quichua, named Quichua, the Quichuas. Um, and, no hospitals, no nothing, and most kids like her in that case, they just let them just pass, you know, just die. They don't know how to take care of them. And again, the local hospital usually doesn't know what to do too, so they tend to, actually, it's just well known that the hospital actually, what happened in our story is the hospital reached out to the orphanage, because they knew this Christian orphanage takes care of kids. And since our government-run hospital contacts the the missionary said, hey, we have another case. She's not going to make it if you don't help. And maybe you can do something. Send her to Quito, the capital, which is about five, six hours drive through the, mountain, the mountains and, and for, for a surgery, a brain, a brain surgery. And so, I mean, I can go on and on. I'm sorry. I'm trying to capture <laughs> the long story. But, uh, no you know, God used that. God used 
the endurance of these guys. They paid for it. Their wives came back, and so many missionaries are in Ecuador now ministering, not only the city, not only the jungle, but even all the way to the other big cities. And and I could have just say God is glorified, and my daughter's alive thanks to the intervention of missionaries in the jungle of Ecuador. work buddy love you all right thank you so much so the fruit of men that have deceased is reverberating even in another century in another country from ecuador to springfield don't ever sell short what god can do when his children just walk in obedience daily are willing to make whatever sacrifices God calls you to do. Let's pray.